Hello, and welcome back to the Checks and Balances Podcast, your source for investing insights and entrepreneurial tips. Today on the Checks and Balances Podcast, we'll be giving you guys at home a recap of what the market did in the first quarter of 2019. On our second segment, we will feature an interview focused on the property management and real estate sector with Brian Corbett, the owner and operator of Flagship Property Management. Welcome to our first segment here on the Checks and Balances podcast. Today, we will be conducting a market recap for the first quarter of 2019. I'm here with Tyler Curley. Hey, Nate. How are you today? Doing well. Doing well. Looking forward to talking about some markets. A lot to talk about today. A lot to talk about. So, you know, kind of getting into it, just diving right in, you know, following a tumultuous close to 2018, stocks down pretty significantly and in December, we enjoyed, I would say, a robust January, and with ongoing negotiations being positive with the United States and China on, on trade, you had strong job growth, low inflation, stable interest rates. That all really helped to fuel investor confidence that seemed to push most major benchmarks to levels we haven't really not seen in the last 30 years. Um, despite even a partial government shutdown, markets still seem to outperform. Um, Each of the major indexes, uh, whether that be uh, Russell, NASDAQ, S&P, Global Dow, and the Dow, they were all up very, very positively in, in, in January and right back into February. We were certainly not on the you know, I would say breakneck pace of the previous month, but corporate earnings were positive generally, and trade talks continued to go with even no deal reached, but you still had positive signs that there was a resolution in, in sight. The partial government shutdown ended at the end of January, and federal um, market com- open market committee indicated that it was inclined to stop increasing the federal funds rate for the foreseeable future. And I think that gave investors continued um, you know, confidence that stocks were going to move higher. And you saw that with the Russell leading the way in February. And typically, you see Russell being small cap, that's going to lead, be a leading indicator um, to other markets, and it did, and it increased the value of for sixteen on actually sixteen percent of the first two months of two thousand nineteen. That was the Russell, um, and all the other major indexes kept going. In March, we saw some fluctuation uh, regularly throughout the month. Large caps of the Dow posted of just a small gain, while the Russell again had been has rode solid waves of gains the first couple months. So, first quarter proved to be a positive one for stocks, with each of the major benchmarks closed the quarter with gains of more than 10%. So, I think most people that are going to start looking at their statements at the end of the first quarter are going to be, I wouldn't say surprised, but they will be happy. Uh, they should be uh, have some smile on their faces. With 
the Dow Jones, the quarterly change was an increase of 11.15%. The NASDAQ was up about almost 16.5%. The S&P was up a little over 13%. Um, everything was positive, except for 10-year treasuries. 10-year treasuries were, were down um, 28 basis points. So we saw a very large rally happening. Um, latest economic reports had you know employment continuing to grow albeit at a slower pace interest rates essentially did not increase and they are not looking to increase it's been a very dovish um, report gdp um, third quarter and the final estimate of the fourth quarter showed the, ec- the economy grew at an annualized percent of 2.2 GDP expanded at 3.4% in the third quarter. So you're still seeing positive GDP. Inflation and, and consumer spending tended to go, it actually saw that personal income decreased by 0.1%, but you saw a lot of, a lot of positive news when it came to, to lower, you know, still low inflation. So a lot of positive things for the first quarter of 2019. So between the dovish Fed and among, you know, concerns over slowing global growth, global growth, I'm sorry, <clears throat> we're, we're doing well. We're doing well, I would say. I mean, uh, this last quarter, the S&P posted one of the, the best quarters in nearly a decade, you know. Uh, and we have basically a, a hard stop from the Fed saying we're not going to raise rates. And I think that that's helping bolster investor confidence in the market, And as you saw through January and February. Uh, but when we look at this, this bounce back, uh, we have to put this into perspective looking at the business cycle and the credit cycle. And we see where, where it's been. Where is it going? Uh, you know what? What does this kind of lead you to believe about the performance over the next three quarters of this year? We should not ever get the economy and the stock market confused. The stock market is a leading indicator, typically, uh, from. Uh, or I, I shouldn't say it's a leading indicator. I would say that the stock market is always ahead of the economy, and so. Um, if we may be up now and then when we start seeing a drag on the stock market, that's, that may precede negative impacts to the stock market. The stock market has a basically a, a situation right now that you got low interest rates still, even though they've been raising interest rates, they have lower interest rates. You've got expanding an expanding consumer uh, and an expanding um, workforce because people are still coming back to work. Um, and that all puts into perspective that you're going to see an increase in the stock market. Now, we also had an inversion of the yield curve. And you and I have spoken about this in the past in different conversations. That started last fall. But we actually had a full-on inversion, you know, a couple weeks, so basically a week before the quarter ended, March 22nd. It, we saw that an inversion go from basically the 10-year note 
fell below the three-month. That is a telltale sign of a future recession. You could say, well, there's always going to be a recession in the future. Well, typically this happens within three months to two years of that particular instance happening. And so when you start seeing the Fed say, well, we're going to be dovish, it's taking it away from the economy. Is it? Yeah, it may be great for the stock market. For the overall economy, they're seeing slower growth. They are seeing a, a consumer that is going to spend less over the next year. And so at what time does the GDP actually go negative, which is two quarters in a row, that's what a recession is. And so what does that look like? So when they say they're not going to be hiking rates at all in 2019, you love it for the stock market, especially in the short run. I don't know how much you like it for the overall economy going forward. Yeah, well, it's it's, it's the whole Main Street versus Wall Street uh, type deal because when, when they're not raising rates or they're refusing to raise rates, they're looking at the economy and they're saying – Number one, it can't handle it. The whole reason why they're not raising rates is so they don't over-encumber the economy itself. Uh, I mean, we're still seeing good wage growth that's outpacing inflation, so there, there's, it's not all bad, <clears throat> but there are concerns. Uh, some of it may stem from trade policy and some uh, negative externalities that we're seeing there as far as uh, rising costs of imports and uh, some rising cost of input materials for, you know, people who manufacture cars or still buildings, things like that. Uh, but I, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. Uh, you, you brought up a good point. You said Main Street versus Wall Street. So the saver in this country has been extremely negatively impacted through the decrease of interest rates over the last, you know, you could even say 30 years, but really the last 10 years, the saver, the person that puts money in the bank and saves it, they have been beaten up because they are getting well below. You know, they can say there's no inflation. I think if you ask the average American, they would say, well, everything that I seem to buy goes up. So whether the governmental statistics show that certain things are, are not going up, I think that if you talk to the average everyday person that that has been negatively impacted. They, they are spending more today than they spent before. And it could be a, a, you know, it could be just society that everyone, you know, maybe everyone has a smartphone, right? So that's an expense that we didn't have 20 years ago. But to your point, the saver has been beaten up. Now, when you wrote, when you lower interest rates, you've gotten exactly what the economists hope for, which is markets to increase because you are forcing people to go do it, make a different decision with their money when you lower interest rates because they're not getting anything on that money that's sitting in the bank in cash. And so then they find other avenues to invest, and that pushes up markets. And well, that, yeah, well, you're, you're pushing people out of uh, debt securities and into riskier assets like equities. And uh, I think that, you know, that overall is helping establish a support for the market because you really don't have another option as far as if you're going to get returns that outpace inflation. Uh, When we're taking a look here at, like, you know, we mentioned earlier, the Main Street versus Wall Street thing, uh, you know, over the past few years, we've seen a lot of the growth concentrated in these 
large cap growth stocks, these tech stocks. And I think now we're seeing a bigger shift towards the, the lower end, these mid cap stocks and, you know, small business and Main Street. Uh, and I think part of that may be due to the tax bill. You're seeing a lot of uh, investment in small business and some growth in that area. And they, it seems like during this current cycle, they've kind of lagged behind the, you know, the big, the FANG stocks, you know, the, the large growth stocks, and they're just now catching up. Now, hopefully that'll extend well in, and uh, this this inverted yield curve won't put a pause on that. But so let me ask you a question: What do you think, sector-wise, did the best year to date? Well, looking here, uh, we can see real estate uh, over the last year has really knocked it out of the park. Uh, returns of seventeen point six two percent. Uh, you've also seen a big pickup in consumer discretionary. Uh, whether or not that'll last. But year to date, year to date, you and I are looking at the same chart numbers. We look at it every day. Year to date, based on the statement you just made, what do you think has been the best performing asset class sector wise uh, when it comes to you know S and P five hundred or, or Dow? What, what's been the best? Well, you can't. You I'm can't. gonna answer the question for you. So it, it's been information technology, and so that is back to the whole tech sector. The tech was leading down. The tech was leading out of it. So they, it was down really, really bad in the end of the year, but it, it has fought its way back up. So a lot of the major indices are still, you know, benefiting from large tech really outperforming year to date. Well, they've carried the S&P. You know, it's been the FANG stocks. If you want growth, most of that growth is concentrated in, you know, those big names. You're not really seeing that explosive growth elsewhere. Uh, now, whether that will continue, you know, that's that's anybody's guess. But I think if you ask the average fund manager what they like, a lot of them are getting very defensive. And so the conversations that I have, they start talking a lot about the healthcare sector. You know, healthcare was last year a, a really strong sector to be in. And they're looking at that going forward, say, well, we, we still like the healthcare sector. We still like the health. And so healthcare itself was the lowest returner of any of the major sectors in the S&P year to date. And that mostly had to do with the fact that they didn't go down as hard at the end of the fourth quarter last year. So you saw, you saw growth in healthcare. But you also saw you've also seen positive growth year to date in healthcare, and I think most people say you're going to see positive growth going forward in healthcare. Listen, healthcare is not going anywhere. The the sector as a whole, because it just when you say healthcare, it encompasses so many different things. Whether it is an insurance play, whether it's a device play, whether it's a pharmaceutical play, there's a lot of things that that sector as a whole shows up, and. When you've got 10,000 people a day turning 65, healthcare is going to be a large portion of spendable income in this country for the foreseeable future. Oh, well, yeah. With the, the demographic shift, we're going to start seeing more people over the age of 65. I think the, the last number I saw was by 2025, 2030, you're going to see for the first time in a long time, a large majority of the population is going to be in that social security retirement zone uh, where their health care costs are going to increase. Uh, 
I want to really hit on that point you made about getting defensive. So, you know, we see the the inversion in the yield curve. Uh, what do you think that's doing to market sentiment? And do you think that that's pushing people toward defensive sectors like utilities and healthcare and things of that nature? Or do you think we might be a little bit of a, ahead of ourselves thinking that it's time to get defensive? I think the average person, or I should say the average investor, just says we're going to keep on rolling until we get off the tracks. So I don't think that necessarily this stops the market on, in, its, in its tracks. I mean, so to give you an example, last time we had inverted yield curve basically was 2005. And it took a couple years before we started seeing, you know, recessionary pressures and, and started seeing, you know, the, you know, the greatest recession we've seen since the Great Depression. So it took a little bit of time. And so the average, the average person does not want to miss out on the upside. The average person doesn't know what an inverted yield curve is, what it means. And the average money manager is the same way. They're, they don't want to miss out on the up. I mean, it's potential that... You know, market goes up, you know, 10, 20, 30 percent from here before we see a pullback in the overall markets. And so what we, you know, we tell clients is we can't predict day-to-day markets. We think that over time you're going to be better invested than you are not. We're not individual stock pickers, individual security pickers. We believe in being diversified and having your money in an array of different types of investments. So I'm not someone to sit here and say, oh, let's get defensive and let's just go buy utilities and, and, and U.S. Treasuries. It's just not the way to play it because statistically speaking, you're better, being, you're better off being in the market than you are being out of the market. So staying invested, you have a higher probability of success. So when you start making choices of getting out of the market or going to a certain sector, then you've got then you've made a value proposition and then you've got to determine when to get out. And so in my experience it's much easier to figure out times to buy than it is to find out times to sell. Well, thank you for your insight Tyler, but that's all the time we have today. We'll be right back with you after the break. The views and opinions expressed herein are those of the speaker and may or may not represent the views of Capital Analyst or Lincoln Investment. Tyler Curley offers advisory services through Capital Analyst or Lincoln Investment, registered investment advisor. Securities are offered through Lincoln Investment, broker-dealer member FINRA, SIPC, www.lincolninvestment.com. Neither Brian Corbett nor Flagship Property Management are affiliated with the Lincoln Investment family of companies. Welcome to our second segment. We are here with Brian Corbett, and we're going to be conducting an interview on property management and real estate sales. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Brian Corbett. I am the broker owner of Flagship Property Management here in Greenville, North Carolina. We also operate out of Goldsboro, North Carolina, so we have two offices. Uh, the second one's just about to open up, but I'm glad to be here with you guys. It's nice to have you. So, Brian and everyone out there, this is uh, Tyler Curley. And Brian and I have known each other for somewhere around 10 years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so being the broker owner of Flagship just really scratches the surface. Um, we could probably spend in, you know three or four segments going into all your different businesses that you own and operate. Would that be accurate? <laughs> probably so, yeah. It's, uh, I definitely have uh, – I'm diversified, if you will, in the business world. I have 
three food trucks, um, investment properties myself, and then the real estate firm plus the property management firm. Yeah, so you and I have talked about this in, in, at different times, but you saw something in the market that drove you to go the property management route uh, when it came to real estate sales because I would say, you know, 10, 12 years ago, we were, we were starting and, and getting into uh, the worst recession that any of us have ever seen. So what, what did you see in the business that made you go down this path? Well, as a broker, I've been a licensed broker since 2003. Uh, I was primarily doing, on, actually, I was only doing real estate sales. And as this recession that you just mentioned happened in 2008-9 time frame, I got married in 2008, the market was doing good before that, felt like I was on my way to a successful real estate sales career. Uh, all of a sudden, I had uh, buyers that could not get qualified, and I had sellers that we couldn't find the qualified buyers for, and they're calling me needing help, uh, job transfers, loss of jobs because of the recession, uh, divorces a large part due to recession, and they're going, help, I need to get rid of my house. Well, I couldn't find them a buyer. Um, So I started looking into the property management. Well, what if I can rent it for you and at least get your mortgage payment made until we figure out what's going on with with the economy in today's world? And uh, and that was seemed to be a solution to a lot of problems at the time, at least in the in the beginning, it was an immediate solution. Uh, some of them wasn't sure if it was a long-term solution, but if, if it could buy them time, then it was it worked for them. And I realized that that needed to be my new path in real estate very quickly. Uh, as is being a custom, real estate sales to be is a customer service uh, business. Real estate as a whole is a customer service business, and that was my new path to offering the best customer service to my current and past clients at the time to fit a solution for them. So for people that don't know, kind of break down the property management business itself. What exactly do you guys do other than take an application and try to place somebody in a property? I mean, it's more to it than just that. There's a lot more to it than that. I, I like to say it's a, we're a full service, what I call a full service property management company. We like to take the entire transaction of the rental property. Uh, on both the owner side and the tenant side off of the property owner's plate as much as possible within reason. Now, when it comes to big expenditures, an HVAC system need to be replaced, a water heater need to be replaced. We do consult with our property owners at that point in time. We want to let them know uh, kind of what's going on with their property. But we try to take everything off of their plate as much as possible, bring the headache in-house. Um, we have approximately 300 of those headaches, if you will, right now. Um, and for us, it's not much of a headache because we do have the proper systems and processes and staff in place so that for you as the property owner, if you have one or two properties, one little issue could become a big deal for you because you don't have that in place. We have that in place, which makes our day-to-day happen a lot more smooth than if a property owner were to handle it themselves. So I was speaking with somebody in South Carolina the other day and understanding that my understanding in South Carolina is you have a different licensure for property management versus strictly real estate sales. Does that work the same way in in North Carolina? I assume there's some sort of certificate or license that you have to have to operate as a property manager. So 
There's really not. Uh, you have to have a real estate license issued by the State of North Carolina Real Estate Commission, uh, which I have. Uh, you also have to have a firm license if you're operating as a real estate property management firm. Same is true if you're operating as a sales firm or, a, or both. Uh, so I have a firm license for flagship property management. I also have my individual broker's license as well. Uh, you do have to have those to legally operate as a property manager or property management company. Who do you think is your biggest competition? Is is somehow, is there some online derivative or entity that can come in and disrupt your business? Do you see that coming? Um, what is your, other than other property management companies, what do you look at as your biggest competition? Well, uh, currently the biggest competition are the other property management companies here in town. There are some good ones, uh, and, and I respect quite a few of them. Um, but as far as in the future, there are some things in play that I'm starting to see uh, that could come in and cause a wrinkle or two. In, in smaller markets like eastern North Carolina, I don't know that it'll become quite as big of a player uh, as some of your larger markets, uh, your Charlottes, your Raleigh's, uh, and then even outside of the state of North Carolina. I, I actually have a question for you. <clears throat> How do you feel if any effect at all has Airbnb affected your business in this market? None, none at all. Mm-hmm. Okay, because no, we don't and do. We, would we, you say it's because East Carolina is a relatively small, isolated market, or you? I think Airbnb is a whole different animal. I mean, we've never we've never operated on the short term vacation weekend style rentals. So in our market here, it hasn't affected us at all. I haven't lost a single property or a client to somebody wanting to do Airbnb. In fact, I've actually picked up some properties that that people purchased with the intentions of and of doing Airbnb type thing, um, you know, RVBO, VRBO, or whatever it is. And they tried it for a little while. One of them was actually pretty successful, but but she was she was here in town. She had to be on site. You've, you've got to... So you'd a, say it's more intensive. Yeah, it's, it's a lot more intensive. I mean, somebody comes in, rents for three days, well, you can't just rent it to the next person the next day. It's got to be cleaned. It's got to be, you know, you got to assess it. you got to give their security deposit back. That stuff we do on an on a annualized basis almost, and these people are turning it over every two or three or four days. Okay, yeah. Good insights. So where do you get new business? Other than, I mean, obviously the good old-fashioned, hey, uh, Brian does a great, Brian and his team does a great job for us. You should check him out. But what other, I've, I've noticed that you've got some other sources of, of lead generation. We, we do. We spend a lot of time and effort on our lead generation. And, and really that comes more from not just with the intention of lead generation, but more with uh, education and information to our current clients plus people that might be looking for a property manager. Word of mouth, uh, historically in any business, has always been uh, your most successful source of lead generation. If somebody calls me because you have told them about your experiences with Flagship or Nate, if you had experiences, uh, that lead, I'm, I'm about a, a 90% conversion on that. They're already They've got a trusted resource that has given them our name. Um, but it's the ones that are going to Google and typing in Greenville Property Management, uh, Greenville Property Manager. They're on Facebook typing that in. You know, uh, Social media is where a lot of that stuff is going now. Well, we rank in the top of our Google searches for just about anything in Greenville or Goldsboro property management. We're in the top one or two. Uh, And then when they get to our website, I mean, it is just a plethora of information. We have a lot of informational videos on there. So 
people are now able to contact us without the guesswork of what is property management and what do you do. They already have been given 90% of their answers because they've watched our videos and they've actually read our blogs on our website. Do you guys put a lot of stock in this digital marketing space? or We do. We do. That's actually where we're spending a very, very large percentage of our marketing budget. I uh, have been doing so for about the last 14 to 16 months, and it's starting now to pay off. Used to when someone contacted us about property management, I would be on the phone with them, of course, answering all of their questions, trying to give them as much information as possible. We, we are transparent uh, in everything that we do. Um, I would spend an hour to an hour and 15 minutes on the phone a lot of times with these people. Well, we had a guy, for instance, or, uh, actually a lady yesterday contact us, and uh, I talked to her for eight minutes. I was on the phone. I looked at the timer, and in eight minutes, she said, send me your contract. I've already been through your website and seen everything, and everything you said is the same. So uh, if it's the same there, it's the same on your Facebook pages, and it's the same on the phone, it's going to be the same in business. So send me your contract. Yeah, yeah. And we picked up that unit, eight-minute phone call that used to take me an hour and 15 minutes because I had to start from step one every single time. So what, what platform would you guys say that you get the most engagement on? Uh, is this Ooh. Facebook, Google? Uh... Facebook and Google are probably our two largest. Both of those point back to our website. So it all, I guess the... You're if just you're redirecting at, them back. If you look at a pyramid, yeah. the, you know, the website's at the top, and then it's funneling down through Google, Google My Business, uh, our Facebook pages, our Instagram pages, uh, our Twitter feed. I mean, all of our blog posts and properties and everything are shared amongst all those. So they, but they all ultimately end up back at our website, which is where all of the information is held. So, full disclosure, you manage uh, my personal property. I I, I'm not a big real estate investor. I, I've got one, but when it comes to real estate investors and multi-unit operators, mm -hmm. you know, people that have two plus, three plus, ten plus properties. How much of that is your business versus the traditional, you know, small operator of one or two or three properties? Currently, 70% of the portfolio that we manage is actually less than four units. So it's a lot of property owners like yourself that have one to three. Um, only 30% of our portfolio is four or more doors. Um, I think our largest client right now has, I don't know, 25, 30, 28, I think doors. Uh, our next behind him is like 10 or 12. So we have a lot of people that are um, either not big time investors or investors who are just starting to expand and, and grow their small portfolios to supplement their retirement. But you focus a lot on the, tr the, the real estate of of residential versus commercial. Would that be accurate? Correct, correct. We do get occasional calls for commercial property management, and I'm willing to take it on, um, but we don't. I don't market for or advertise for commercial clients. Uh, there are some great commercial property managers here in town, um, but that's just not a space that I'm really prevalent in. So let's go through some, it, it, you know, not to pry too much, but let's go through some economics. What is, what is it typically you're looking at from the economic side that you're looking at, at trying to get out of the out of a property is it a percentage 
Uh, what are you looking at when it comes to economics of the business? As a property manager or as an investor? Well, as a property manager. Okay. So as a property manager, so our base base price right now is a, is a flat fee system. I mean, a percentage-based system, excuse me. It's a percentage-based system. And for anyone that owns less than four doors is 10% of the gross monthly rent received. Um, now, that's not while the property is vacant. It's not in the unfortunate circumstance that a tenant doesn't pay rent. Um, but it's only whenever we collect rent on the owner's behalf or we paid that fee. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you, you talked a lot about systems and processes, mm-hmm. and you and I have talked about that over time. It took you some time to, oh. to set that up, right? Yes, yes, yes. And so go through that a little time bit. Time and money. Time and money. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, so you have, I'm assuming, software systems and, and different processes Talk us through that and how you're able to scale your business that way. Okay. Uh, so, yes, over the course of the years, you know, when you start out very small, when you start out like I did, you know, a, a one-off type system, a, a pick up a house here, a house there to take under management, and that's, that property, say, rents for $700 a month, well, that's only $70 a month. I mean, it takes a lot of those to have money to invest back into the business uh, that can give you any kind of a substantial um, substantial return. Um, so there for a while, I mean, we were, it was a lot of hand ledgers and, and pens and papers. And, and Kelly Williams, my office manager, she's been with me 10 years now. Uh, the business is only 12 years old. So I hired her at a very young age in the business and I took that leap of faith and it's actually paid off. So uh, what we've done is over the years, we've developed through trial and error. I mean, you know, we all make mistakes. We're still human. Um, but we've learned the proper ways and the best ways for practices to actually grow and scale our business. So we do have six different softwares that we currently use in our business that allows us, if someone calls us today and they have 25 units that they want us to manage, we can take on those 25. Uh, Now, there's a lot of front-end grunt work that we'll have to do to get those into those systems, but once we get them in, we don't have to revamp everything we do for that kind of growth. Um, so that has helped us a great deal, just having all of those systems in place. So you developed the system itself. It wasn't like you plugged in because, you know, I've talked about, you know, we're a part of uh, Jackson Hewitt Tax Franchise, right. essentially plugging into uh, a system. You right. had to create the system. We, we did. We had to create systems. So the softwares that we use now, are they're... They're a bit of a plug-and-play type situation where they're, they're property management specific uh, in their origin, but you have to plug them in and fit them uh, or fit your company to what they offer and how they work. So whenever we do, we took on a new software system last year for maintenance requests and communications between our tenants, our vendors, property managers, and sometimes the owners. And those that system has been some of the best money I've ever spent. Now... I had to go sit down with each of my vendors and tell them we're no longer doing it the old way because they wanted it the day in, the day out. Uh, this is the new way. And once they bought into it, once they saw how it worked, if I took it away now, I'd probably lose all my vendors. <laughs> <laughs> so walk us through what a typical day in Brian Corbett property manager looks like. Whew. Well, there's, there's three phases to the month. There's the first third of the month, which is your rent collection time. Uh, And that's when the office becomes very, very busy because we have people bringing in our rent, um, you know, and we're handling at that point in time. That's when a lot of tenants want to put in maintenance requests. They want to tell you about things. So you just have a lot more daily involvement with the tenant side of things. 
The middle third of the month is uh, that's when we're checks are clearing, rent checks are clearing, invoices are coming in for maintenance requests. We're getting those checks paid out, and disbursement out to our property owners. And then the the last third of the month is whenever we are in our the hard part about property management, which is. Uh, talking to that tenant about the eviction paper they just received uh, in the unfortunate circumstance they haven't paid their rent. So uh, the day-to-day for the property manager, that changes throughout the month because you have to put on a different pair of shoes. And some are the nice, pretty pair of shoes that uh, everything goes well. And then some are the grunt work pair of shoes when you're you're in court, you're meeting a locksmith to lock out someone or you know that kind of thing. So I, I can't say what a day-to-day looks like because it changes throughout the month. That's why you get paid the big bucks, right? Uh, well, <laughs> we need a few more units to get the big bucks. <laughs> Good stuff. So what's your outlook on real estate? Um, you know, we last week we had an inverted yield curve to occur, which is when short-term rates um, actually start paying out more than long-term rates. That's a signal for a potential issue in the market. You've seen real estate sales go down, at least in the national numbers, uh, with the increase of interest rates. You know, what do you see? So I guess the real question is, is there a correction coming? Yes. I think there is a correction coming. Um, I don't think it's going to be a correction or a recession, if you want to call it that, to the tune that we saw in 2008-2009 here in eastern North Carolina. Um, I I don't think we're going to reach that level. Uh, but historically, in real estate, there, it, 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 the stock market, everything. I mean, uh, your commodities markets. There's there's peaks and valleys, and there's gonna. I mean, it's inevitable. It's gonna happen again. And you know, is that due to today's politics? I don't. I don't know the answer is yes to that. But yes, there is a correction coming. Is it going to be a massive one that's going to put a lot of people out of work or uh, negative equity? Probably not. Uh, but we may see more of a leveling of pricing uh, to a small dip, but I don't think there's going to be a, a big, massive correction. And to be clear, we're talking about real estate. Talking about real estate. Yeah. I, I can't speak on... I mean, you're the professional when it comes to the well, financial advisement on that stuff. I always but. tell people they feel better about their house and their real estate investments because they don't, they're not able to go online every day, or they could, but they don't take the time to go online to see what the actual daily value of that... <laughs> that's, that's exactly that's, right. You know, that's so exactly the same right. with stock, I can go on and... Well, and, and, and so, you're, so let's say a stock is 50 bucks and it changes by 10%, that's $5. You know, well, if I lose $5 on the value of my house, I can look every day and I don't freak out because my house is worth, say, 200000 Yeah, You know, that right. $5 is almost an irrelevant amount of money at that point in time. But when that $5 is every day for a 12-month period, all of a sudden you go, uh-oh. <laughs> or, or, or and, and you have something tangible. It's something you can see and touch. You know, when, you, when you're looking at investments... It's an idea that you own something and you can't go out and touch it. Well, I'm a, I'm a real estate investor myself. I have, obviously, a bunch of real estate clients doing what I do uh, in property management. And, and so a, a, a saying, a thought process is um, I can take X amount of dollars and put it into a house. Well, at any point in time, correction or not, uh, ebbs and flows, good and bad, I can actually drive to and look at my money, so to speak. You know, because there's a property there. I can go by and go, look, oh, okay, well, that was a 20% down payment. I can actually see that. Uh, and so that's, for some people, is a comfort level. So I have a theory that everyone that is under the age of, of 50 um, wants to invest in stocks and real estate or wants to be a part of stocks and real estate. It's a glamorous industry, so to speak. So give us a little bit of insight 
on maybe tips that you would have for some you know budding entrepreneur that wants to get into the real estate business because you've seen the ups and you've seen the downs. I've, I've seen I've seen both. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen everything in between. Uh, it, it, to to speak on that for a second, TV has made real estate sexy. Uh, if you will, and I hope that's okay to say, but yeah. TV has made it sexy. I mean, you see the house flipping shows where they buy a house for 150, they put 30 in it. Next thing you know, they sell it for 320, and they're walking away with 170 thousand. And that's just not—I don't know if the math was right there—but that—that is not reality. Um, even on those instances, they've got a lot more expenses that they don't report to you. Uh, it, the biggest one being taxes on that short-term income, um, short-term gain. So. TV has has glorified real estate investing um, in not such a great way, in my opinion. Uh, but my advice to someone that wanted to get into real estate investing or a budding entrepreneur that wanted to, to look into that is I call real estate a get-rich-slow program, not a get-rich-quick. Uh, you buy a rental property, you buy one, and you, you're, you're high, you know high in the clouds, you know, you got all these endorphins running through you. I'm a real estate investor and six months down the road and you realize you're making 110 bucks a month in positive cash flow. Well, that's not as sexy as you felt six months ago. Um, but done correctly, you compound that, okay, into another one. And next thing you know, you've got five. Well, now they're bringing in $500, $600 a month in positive cash flow. That can actually help your month out. That can help your year. Um, it's a get-rich-slow program, but it can really pay off at the end for somebody that really sticks to their guns. So let's talk about real estate investing. You as an investor, mm-hmm. how do you go about evaluating a property to say, this is a good deal, or at least this is a fair deal? Okay. So the... The simplest method in step one of evaluating a property is what I call the 1% rule. Uh, This is not something I came up with. It's just kind of a generalization in this market that seems to work for me uh, when I'm evaluating for myself or my customers. And that is uh, the rent needs to be 1% or higher of the all-in cost of the property. Uh, so, uh, example, a three-bedroom, two-bath that I know in a certain area is going to rent for $800 a month. I know that as the investor, I should not be more than $80,000 all into that property because $800 is 1% of that $80,000. Uh, if it's below that 1% rule, I just did air quotes, but the 1% rule, then I am going to be on borderline of not positive cash flow, but negative cash flow. Uh, there's every property cash flows. It's either positively or negatively. <laughs> is, is that assuming you have full equity in the house, or is that assuming a loan? Or that's what, that's assuming that a loan. That's not playing in any other factors of evaluation, such as equity, appreciation, tax depreciation, uh, any of those features whatsoever. So I know what my all-in costs are to purchase and revamp the property. That's what needs to be done. Uh, I know what the rental is. If it meets that 1% rule or 1% or higher, then I know there's a good chance that I'm going to have positive cash flow on that property. Now is when I take a further step into the property and really, really break down my evaluation. Very interesting. So Brian, for people that want to get in contact you in contact with you or your staff, about renting their property or, or, or real estate in general, how do they find you? The best way to find us is through our website, which is flagshiprentalproperty.com. Uh, you can also find us through your social media channels if that would be the preferred method. Uh, we have uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. 
uh, at Flagship NC on Instagram and Twitter, and then Flagship Property Management on Facebook. Uh, but our website, FlagshipRentalProperty.com, is the best way to get in touch with us. We'll, we'll, we'll add a link to the uh, comments of this Fantastic. Show. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Thanks again for your time, Brian, and for uh, giving our guests some great insights into property management. Thanks for allowing me to be on. It was a great opportunity. That's all the time we have today. Thanks for tuning in to the Checks and Balances Podcast. You can subscribe to us at Checks and Balances Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and on Anchor. For questions you'd like answered or comments, please email Podcast at gmail.com. Advisory services provided through Capital Analyst, Legend Advisory, or Lincoln Investment, Registered Investment Advisors. Securities offered through Lincoln Investment, broker-dealer member FINRA SIPC. Robinson Associates and the above firms are independent and non-affiliated. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax, legal, or social security claiming advice is not offered through nor supervised by Lincoln Investment or Capital Analyst. The views and opinions expressed herein are those of the authors noted and may or may not represent the views of Capital Analyst or Lincoln Investment.